out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Department S, because I recently caught up with Eddie Roxy, or I think as his real name is, something like... Something like, he says, looking down at my trusted notes. Yes, Edward Lloyd Barnes. There you go. Singer, keyboard player, and many, many other things as well within the band. Anyway, look, this is the interview, and after many, many minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting um, yeah, subject that was the early formative years. Eddie, tell us more. Strange enough, because, uh, unfortunately, I was going to say, because I was born in 1960, that, that music was just such a big part of the world in the 60s. And that even as a very small child, you couldn't help but get sort of soaked, sucked into it. Um, things like, I mean, I can remember that my earliest memories are sort of like the Beatles being on the telly. And, and I have a particular memory of my, of my mum buying a hard day's night um, only because... I remember the the next door neighbour's daughter sort of coming in very very proudly one day, and she was about fourteen, saying, "Oh, I've just bought Hard Day's Night." And my mum going, "Oh, we got it a couple of weeks ago," and which I thought was a uh, was a little bit cruel of a thing to say to a fourteen year old at the time. But uh, but looking back on it, I look at that, and I think I was four at the time, and even then I could sort of think of that. But it was it was weird to think that that was one of the the little memories. But I mean, things like the Beatles being on TV was such a big event, and you know, you'd switch on the telly because the Beatles were on the Royal Variety Show or something like that. But then just sort of as the 60s rolled on, there was just music always in the house and stuff like that. I really started personally getting getting sort of interested in, in stuff probably in, in the very early 70s with things like T-Rex. Right, yes, you were that. Because I was born 64, so it was it was around that kind of probably 72, 73 with um, the slight, the glam. Some of the yeah. not such great glam, but I loved it, you know, Slade. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, the, the sad thing is actually the way that it's it's suddenly sort of become glam and and it's and it's been sort of sucked into this sort of like cartoon rock type thing that glam sort of was at the time although they were exaggerating the ridiculous fashions that people were wearing at the time anyway but the, but I mean there are some very very good bands within that little collective I mean T Rex obviously being one but but more notable than anyone else is Slade who are just. Yes. A, a fantastic rock band, and, and, and when, when you actually listen to their albums in, sort of now, you just sort of think, wow, these are really good tunes, and we're not talking about the singles, but the other bits. And so it, being sort of suddenly getting interested in all those singles bands really sort of struck, a, uh, triggered the interest for me, and I started buying sort of like a single on a regular basis, and it wasn't until uh, I think it was 70... I think when Aladdin Sane came out, but when Aladdin Sane came out, which was about seventy-three, I think. Yes, was, that's right. Maybe 70, yeah, that that was the first album I actually bought, uh, and which which I'm very proud of because it could have been something absolutely awful. And uh, that, along with Killer by Alice Cooper, were the two things I went went out with some pocket money, and um, I think at a birthday or something like that, and, and bought those two albums, and just. After that, I sort of fell in love with the album side of the business because prior to that, it had always been very singles-based. Yes, that's interesting because um, I do remember Alice Cooper 
And that school's out, which was probably about 73, it was such an anthem when you're young. And it seemed so, you know, brilliantly exciting. Because we'd also had Blockbuster by, um, yes, yeah, sweet, sweet. Yeah. And then we hit also Crazy Horses, horses by the Osmonds. Oh, which well, was... I mean, Crazy Horses is a fantastic song. It's um, brilliant. I, I, and, and, you know, it, it is one of those sort of strange things that you think. I mean, must admit, at Department S, we did think about covering Crazy Horses. Uh, we thought we were debating what to do as a cover because we every now and then like to throw in a cover in a set and thought, wow, let's do Crazy Horses. It's a great song. We put it on, and yeah, it is a great song. Yes, it had that that had that weird. I don't know what it was. That little bit of weird noise. Brian, even before Brian Eno, probably they, they sort absolutely. Of... <laughs> it was sort of like a synthesizer before a synthesizer was around. Yes. It probably actually could well have been. Actually, it was probably just a. Hammond organ or something that he'd managed to do something wacky with, but I have no idea which Osmond was 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 actually doing that sort of stuff. But um, whichever one it was, uh, was obviously manipulating it a bit. Yeah, they spoiled it though, didn't they? Jimmy spoiled it all with um, Long Haired Lover. <laughs> but then, when did you start to sort of get drawn, sort of from being a, a sort of the consumer to to thinking actually I might I might sort of develop a bit more of my musicality here. When, when when the whole punk thing happened and it became and it became just very uh, not easier but it but it became it, 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 it was everyone thought that it was an easier opportunity to suddenly get involved and so you know at school we had bands and stuff like that so I sort of jumped on board and that and and sort of played a few gigs to it, doing that and thought wow this is this is really good fun I like this um, but uh, and then really it was about nineteen uh, I suppose about nineteen 79, maybe early 80, when I joined Department S. Right, 79. So that was... It might possibly have been 79. <clears throat> it might have been early 80. I, I'm, I, I'm slightly vague on the, on, on the dates when it, when it actually happened. I can remember the first gig, which was at the uh, Music Machine, and we had Theatre of Hate supporting us at the time. OK. And did it, was it the case then that the band had already formed and, and you sort of came on, on board? It, Department S, the, um, two of the members, uh, sorry, three of the members have been in a band called Guns for Hire and uh, Guns for Hire had a single out called uh, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, which was a sort of little scar type thing and um, what uh, had happened was that they, that they, it had been sort of like a bit of a bit of fun and they decided to take it seriously and then when they decided to take it seriously it sort of morphed into Department S and I joined uh, literally just as they were uh, as they were morphing into into department s they were looking for a keyboard player um i was in a nightclub called studio 21 um sitting next to vaughn Toulouse, who was the singer and vaughn mentioned that he was looking for a keyboard player and my friend chris said uh, eddie's got a wasp synthesizer he can play a keyboard and uh, so that was it. Um, and to be fair, I was the, I did say to Vaughan, I did warn him, I said, I'm not exactly Vangelis, <laughs> which was, uh, to be honest, uh, very much an understatement. Um, and uh, it, the great thing about Wasp keyboards is you can play it with one finger, and I could only play it with one finger. Um, that was the limitation of my, my uh, keyboard playing ability. Yes. And did it all sort of fit into place? Because with a lot of bands, they take a bit of time to get a sound and also make something that's kind of a memorable single, whereas with the Department S it didn't happen quite like that, did it? And also, I suppose with Guns of the Hire it meant that you'd had a, they'd had a bit of an apprenticeship before that. 
Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, 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 that, that, that was good grounding for actually uh, going out. They'd done a lot of rehearsal. They hadn't actually played live as Guns for Hire, um, but they'd, uh, they, they, they'd done a lot of rehearsal. I sort of slipped in and just added that sort of synthesizer sound in the background, which was sort of, as we were moving out of punk into new wave, the synthesizer was sort of like the instrument that defined you almost as being a new wave band rather than being a punk band. Um, so off I went and, uh, and added that bit to, to the sound we were doing. I mean, at the time, we only had, I think we had eight songs when we did our first couple of sets. And when we went down really well, we used to just simply play them again. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> I hope no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you were drunk enough. But yeah, the, so when you recorded, you know, obviously everyone else is, your fame, the famous debut single, which was kind of like, wow, you hit this sort of jackpot straight away did what was the process of of writing and recording that uh it well when i when i joined the band we already had it as a written uh, as a written single and uh, or as a written song what, what, once we started playing live it became obvious that that was our strongest song and we didn't have a record deal at the time so our management owned an, another record label a uh, record label of their own called demon records and so the, the idea was that we put it out and deem it as a sort of like bit of bait to the bigger record labels, and then we get signed by a bigger record label. Um, so that's what happened. We went down to Nick Lowe's studio down in uh, Shepherd's Bush, which sounds very, very glamorous, but it was his front room converted into a literally a house. Front room was converted into a studio. Uh, turned up there to find two guys from Mott the Hoople who'd been employed to actually uh, be the producers on it. So that was a bit of a, wow, gosh, look, it's it's over in Watson Buffin here. Um, So we spent a whole day recording it, uh, came back and spent another day doing the B-side. Next thing we know, it was was put out as a single, but just literally sold reasonably well, but not magnificently for sort of months and months and months. Um, and it was only when, we, when, when it got put out by RCA, and RCA sort of took up an option on it, put their marketing behind it, and it suddenly pushed it into the, into the charts. Had it not been for RCA, it might not have done that. I'm really not sure it was the best choice of the first single because we had quite a good live following going at that point in time, and it was easily our best song. So had we have actually put out something like Clap Now, which was another favourite from the time, we would have sold as many singles as we sold as, uh, as as we did with Vic to start with but then once it, then we could have actually signed a deal and then got some traction by putting out Vic as a second song yes it was your sort of 99 red balloons moment wasn't it you went straight there oh uh, yeah ish <laughs> <laughs> yeah and did you never mention one hit wonders to people who are in the one hit wonder bands no god i mean no they, i mean they went on to do Phenomenal. I mean, they're still going, actually. You know, and, no, no, so are we. Yeah. And, and yes, I know. I mean, it's just um, it's just that that kind of. I mean, strangely enough, actually, going left right, which was the um, follow up to Vic. I mean, that got into the lower reaches of the top fifty, uh, and still sold about eighty five thousand copies, but just didn't actually sort of push through. Yeah, because it's quite an interesting time because we'd had the punk period, and there was definitely this kind of, as with any scene. 
there's that sort of a bit of a leftover, you know, who's in the kitchen doing the washing up when it's kind of over, like the 60s and obviously the mm. punk period, because some of the bands that started to appear, it was like, OK, I think this is kind of over now. They've, they're lay, they're labouring the point. We need the next scene to come along and kind of brush well, them well, under the... The, the bizarre thing about that point in time was, was there was just this huge explosion of just everything, because, you know, on, on the one hand, I mean, you know, and we were playing with a lot of these people at various gigs. You know, on, on the one hand, you had... So like the scar thing going on with madness, special selector, sort of going off onto on, onto one side. You had the the mod revival that went off, which was sort of stimulated by the by the jam coming along. But you, but you obviously had uh, Secret Affair, the Chords, uh, Purple Hearts, and things like that. Then you had the um, the sort of people just going very very much into pop uh, with the likes of you know Adam and the Ants, Bow Wow Wow, and all those uh, sort of things. Um, and so that there was just lots of different bits. The electric, uh, emergence of electro was happening around that sort of, sort of time as well. So, you know, really probably influenced by David Bowie in 77, releasing uh, those four albums that came out in 77, the, the two by Iggy Pop and Heroes and um, Low, which came out with, from his time in, in, in Berlin. So there was just so much going on all over the place. And then there was the new romantics, which were happening, which was sort of very encapsulating lots of bits of that. It was just a really weird musical period because things were just firing off all over the place. Probably for the first time ever, I think, there were just loads of stuff. So there wasn't really one bit that you went, well, this is what's happened to the music at that point in time. Unlike various other other times it was it was it was just massive fragmentation in a time when unlike today when you can fragment because you've got the media um outlets to 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 actually do that all over the place through the internet you know in those days you had you know one radio station almost uh, the the local radio stations were just starting to emerge uh, across the country so not everyone had one um, and most stuff was was Radio One, and then sort of Luxembourg and things like that. Yes, it was kind of interesting because yeah, you, you know, one thing that I realised having done done this show for a while is that there were the gatekeepers, weren't there? Those kind of there was, there was just a few outlets, which is both good and bad. It means that you have to, you know, if you don't get one of those gatekeepers, you're basically never going to get out of your playing in front of friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you. But when you get mm. the John Peel session or the NME or um, one of those kind of moments, things change again, don't they? I mean, that's that's the thing. What I noticed with the indie scene was that you know, a John Peel session, and then, you know, that would give people that kind of enthusiasm to do the album, but they would also get picked up and do a lot of, you know, gigs around the country, because every town would have an indie alternative club night, wouldn't they? Yes, very much so. I mean, um, for us, the, the Peel session that we did was was definitely a, a, one, of, one of those little opener bits, because, I mean, suddenly it meant that everyone... It was a must-listen-to thing on, on, on at 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, and suddenly everyone would actually be talking about it. And everyone would be a sort of total recognition of your band. Yes. Uh, so, 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 so consequently, you know, people wanted you on support bills and all that sort of thing. And also, there was a, a, a very rich, as you say, uh, um, live circuit at that point in time. So there were loads of venues all over the place. I mean, loads of bands just spent uh, ages and ages just touring around London, sort of you know going around doing. The various venues, you know, Putney, the the obviously the Half Moon, 
then you had the moonlight in West Hampstead, uh, places up in, in Camden from the Music Machine uh, uh, and Dingwalls, uh, places in, in West London like the Red Cow and the Nashville. Uh, so there was just places absolutely everywhere. Yeah. And, did you and, you, and you, you, almost, you almost could do a tour of London that rather than actually now, now today when you'd actually be popping around all over the, all over the country, you could spend, spend uh, a lot of time mm-hmm. just touring around London in probably 78, 79, I saw loads of, you know, so, saw people like the Banshees and Adam the Ants loads of times simply because they would be appearing at all those various places as well as central London um, in, in, in the Marquee or the Vortex or somewhere like that. Yes, absolutely. And did you ever, you know, because at that time, you know, in New York, you had the whole sort of world that was, you know, the um, Can- uh, Max's Kansas City and you had the Mud Club and you had CBGBs. Did you ever manage to get over to the West uh, East Coast and play any dates? Not at all. No, it, 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 was, it was something that, I don't know, I, I think probably our thing just happened very quickly and, and, and sort of uh, disappeared very quickly. I mean, the, the real reason that, that, uh, that the band didn't actually move forward was because Stiff Records went bust just as we were about to release an album with them. Uh, and uh, w- the whole thing was recorded. We spent 50 grand uh, doing it. And then Stiff, Stiff went bust and sort of everything sort of went all over the place, at which point we just sort of got left behind for some strange reason. Now, I'm not really too sure why. Having already had an album recorded, surely it was within the, the sort of logic of someone to actually approach another record label and say look we've got this listen to it why not put it out I mean, it didn't actually get released until i think 1993 uh, which it was released as first of all it was just released as, as is vic there um and then uh, after that it became substance which also had a whole load of bonus tracks and things uh, along with it my god so many people you you know i've spoken to it's all about timing isn't it there's so much absolutely about- and, and sort of having things line up because there's a few people or bands who were on record labels that look good you know obviously they were probably okay but then you know like factory records a few bands who'd, who I've interviewed were like oh yeah they went bust and um, we kind of got forgotten and, and put in the folder really it was kind of well, and, and also actually where, where you fall with it within the pecking order you know that is it, is it used to be I'm sure it still is a major problem at, at record labels because You'd be sitting there, and if someone on, on your label suddenly did super well, all the resources and all the talent would actually be pushing behind the police and making sure at A&M that the police were actually getting all the best things because they were about to go on tour here, there, and everywhere. And obviously everyone wants to be associated with success. And I'm sure there's a whole load of other smaller bands who could have made it with a bit of with the right impetus behind them that just got left behind and people just sort of went oh we'll just say oh well actually i'm a bit busy to do that at the moment uh, and so suddenly you, you you ended up with sort of, you know some graduate trainee working on your on your business whereas had they had the guys that have been promised to you in the first place been working on it you could well have actually done much better yes god I, mean, I, think, I think there's a, there's obviously a case for right place right time there's a case for actually people who've got talent and then if you're supremely talented there's a very good chance that you will go on and on and make it but it's the people who are in between that are on that slight cusp that could have actually made it and had three really good albums but never really did but then i think the interesting thing looking back on it was that when you went out to see gigs in the in the sort of early 80s and uh, late 70s 
quite often on a bill, there'd be sort of three or four bands, and you'd actually think, wow, these are really great bands, and that was the best band, that was the second best band, that was the third best band. And before you knew it, the third best band were on top of the pops, and suddenly the next thing you know, they were, they, they'd were got number one single in America, and you thought, whoa, where, how, how did that happen? <laughs> yes, uh, and it, it, I know. And, you know, A lot of it is just luck and being in the right place at the right time. Yes, no, I know, because that's, um, I mean, I think the thing what's happened during lockdown, a lot of people have been going through their archives, they've probably been in the attic kind of pulling and pulling stuff out and looking through old posters and gigs and stuff like that, and they've been posting up quite a lot on social media. And some of the gigs that used to happen for £3 with three or four really good bands. Oh, well, they, I mean, they, they, they used to do a Sunday night thing at the Lyceum, and it got to a point when they were doing five bands on that. And, and when, you, when you look at some of the bills, they're just amazing. You know, you've got sort of Gang of Four, Stiff Little Fingers, The Human League, and a couple of other bands all on the same bit, or all on the same night. You think, wow, that was a cracking bill. Yes, um, for a five. <laughs> absolutely. But, um, so you had enough money to have to buy a bag of chips on the way home. Yes. Oh, amazing. I know. God, <laughs> now we just sound like old people. So then what happens then? Because obviously this is kind of not the great the narrative you want. But bizarrely, I mean, thankfully, you know, we were talking about a bit earlier about first albums and singles. Mine was David Bowie and, and so it was Space Oddity when it got reissued and it, then it was Changes One Bowie. And then I, you know, became obsessed with him throughout the rest of my life, you know, your first love. But I realised the stuff in the 60s was pretty strange and and appalling really you know i mean i don't know who would have been buying it when you could have bought the doors jefferson airplane you know jimmy well, hendrix well, I, think, I think i think the reality was people weren't buying it that's why that's <laughs> why, why, why he never made it through that but well, I mean, he had that sort of newly fixation in in that early stuff and and, and it was it was sort of it, it was a little bit more sort of music hall and, and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, I must admit, I don't dislike some of that early stuff, but it, but it wasn't rock and roll. No. It was, it, 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 it was sort of light entertainment, and you sort of got the impression that he was almost looking to, uh, to appear on the Lulu show and then have his own show himself type of thing. Yeah, I know. So, it's very, it is very strange, actually. I often wonder when he was doing that, you know, what was... I mean, I suppose, actually, he was going for a very folk, folk bit at one period. But anyway, look, but then, yeah, so then, you know, perseverance, that's the key to keeping it going. So when you had your idea, you know, the album didn't come out and the record label's gone bust, what happens in, in 1982, not 92, 82? I think, I think that at that point, the whole band just sort of it, it imploded on, it, on itself. I think there was, there was uh, because of the, the diversity of, the, uh, of what was going on in the music scene, some of that was reflected from within internally within the band as well. So there were different people wanting different things, and I think that Vaughan, uh, he he was actually interested in sort of more of the, the, the nightclubbing scene and the, and the sort of disco bits that were starting to come out. Which he released a couple of singles after Department S, as a, one of which was called Pickle Public Speaking, which is sort of going along that almost sort of whammy sort of type thing, but. Uh, with a, but not so sort of poppy, but more sort of uh, clubby. Yes. And, uh, uh, and that was sort of a, a direction he was moving in, whereas I think there were other people in the band who were, who were much more moving towards the, the, the sort of indie rock type of thing and would quite happily have been uh, seen themselves as contemporaries of Echo and the Bunny Men um, rather than uh, sort of going down that sort of wham type route. And I think Vaughan was looking at, at, at that and seeing where the where that whole scene was going. I mean, he was actually, went out to New York to launch the WAG Club. 
um, it, uh, it, uh, there. So, you know, he was already part of all that scene and was really into it. And so that's where he saw himself going. And it, and it wasn't where everyone else was going. And so it, the, the whole thing just sort of came to a, a grinding halt, really. Yeah. And did you have a moment where you all sat down and said, this is the end? No, I think it was just like I think, I think like lots of bands, it was one of those bits where there were, where, where it just it just sort of came came to an unnatural end. But various, I, I'd left by that point in time. Other people were leaving. Mike Herbage left uh, and went off and joined the uh, joined the Purple Hearts. I think after after he'd finished, um, and so I think the only two original members by the time the band sort of officially split up were Stuart Meisen, who was the uh, drummer, and and, and Vaughan. And yes. so all, all, all sorts of other people have actually stepped in at various points in time, um, which I think is is, is is the way with bands. Uh, there, there, there wasn't any great sort of cataclysmic fallout or anything like that. It was just a general parting of the ways and the different people leaving at different times. Yes, and then um, and then sort of what happens to you, you know, as well as a few of the other members. But yeah, what happens when you when you step away from the limelight, so to speak? I went off to, to um, do a band called Dream Sequence, and we had a, a song called Outside Looking In, which uh, Swain and Jolly, who worked with uh, Banana Armour and Spandau Ballet, uh, produced, and we were in there on, on their record label, which is Red Buff. Um, but they also had Imagination as well, and, and we were sort of a bit of a victim to that. And uh, as Imagination took off, literally as we got there, we got nothing back on the, in, in terms of service to us, and everything was channeling towards that. Um, but the single itself did well in Europe and appears on quite a lot of compilation albums there, but absolutely zilch in the UK. Mm. Um, absolutely died a death. And unfortunately, it was in an era where uh, we didn't appreciate that people in Europe buy records. Um, I think that the one of the great um, naiveties of the British uh, music business during the 60s and 70s was that everyone just looked to the UK and to America possibly other English-speaking markets like Australia and New Zealand. And actually never... Johnny Foreigner doesn't really know anything about music. They like listening to Klaus Wunderlich and uh, James Last and things like that. <laughs> and, 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 and so consequently, people just never went outside you know, and did the groundwork. You know, we were never asked to go into Europe and do, and do much stuff. Even with Department S, we, we went... We, we were, uh, Vic was very successful in Europe, but so was... Um, uh, I Want, the third single, was, was a really big hit in a few places in Europe. And we never really went and exploited those marketplaces. No one ever said to us, look, go over. It's I Want's doing really, really well in Spain, which it did. Um, go over to Spain and spend a couple of months there. Go, We're, we're going to arrange you a tour and all that sort of thing. It was, oh, yeah, it's selling in Spain and they're all foreign, so it doesn't really matter. Yes. And then you, you thought, well, what? What on earth are you talking about? Interestingly enough, I think one of the strangest bits on that is that the jam never really made it anywhere outside the UK. And they were on Polydor, who were a German record label, and you would have thought that Polydor would have been exactly the right people to say, right, come out to Germany, we'll put you into, we're going to arrange tours for you all over the place. You know, they had the connections and all that sort of thing. And never did it. And consequently, you know, Paul Weller plays all of his gigs in the UK and never really, I mean, if obviously there is an audience that appreciates British music in America, but the jam never actually made it in America. But there is still an audience for them if they want to go out there and play occasionally. But 
from the jam and, uh, and and Paul Weller spend most of their time making making money in the UK. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, because yeah, now... it's, it's sad. I think that nowadays it's different because the the whole marketplace is global. You know, and, and you, you 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 read that sort of Chris Martin's fallen off the stage in front of a hundred thousand people in Kuala Lumpur or something like that, and you sort of think, wow, you know, back in our day. No one went to Kuala Lumpur, unless you were the Beatles or something like that. You know, just a normal band didn't go and do that. You know, if, if, if you were a, a rock band, you toured America, you toured the UK, and you might have possibly done capital cities in Europe, but that was it. No one went to anywhere like a Dubai, a Kuala Lumpur, a Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, or anything like that. Yeah, but it's interesting because I think it's... This is quite simplistic here, but I remember a few managers, you know, the, the sort of really, you know, the cliched hard, hard rocking managers. There was Wham, which I suppose that was Simon Napier Bell, wasn't it? And also, it was, the, yeah. and, and the police, and that was his brothers, wasn't it? Um, Miles, Miles. Miles. They both got those bands out and about. I think they both played China or something quite random, but. They did. But, they they, did but he saw, I always remember a documentary where he just saw. Money, straight, I mean, that was the uh, brother, you know, Copeland. And he, I just remember him sort of, I don't know, it was something like ringing up Harley Davidson or, or some motorbike company and saying, look, give us some motorbikes and, we'll, and I'll put the band sitting on them. And they went, yeah, that's great. And he said, you know, you, you would have been wasting your time in the UK because they wouldn't have worked out that that's a good bit of marketing. Whereas he just said, you know, he could just see potential in everything. You know, it's like, yeah, we just want some motorbikes. <laughs> yeah, no, well, absolutely. But, uh, no, I, 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 think, I think also the other, the other strange little quirk is I was at school with the Copeland brothers uh-huh. um, in Beirut. So they were people who actually lived around the world in the first place. So I would imagine that because of that, they'd actually you know, had a much better understanding for you know, the fact that there is life outside of both the UK and the US. Yes, and probably just thought this could be... I would imagine with a lot of people, if they've got any awareness, probably think this isn't going to last forever, so let's make as much money as possible, and then thinking, OK, time to... Um, yes, but then it you know it lasted a lot longer than they probably expected, so it was all good stuff, wasn't it, really? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it is one of, the, one of those things that they... You know, for, for quite a while, it, for the police, it became a phenomenon, didn't it? And they were sort of literally hopping around the world, and they probably did a lot of groundbreaking stuff in places like South America and, uh, and those sort of places. Yes, and it, and it was weird, because when they did that reunion, I always remember the documentary about bands reforming, and normally it's a really bad idea. Though you actually proved the point that it's not always a bad idea, but with the police, it was quite a bad idea, because... Obviously, Sting and the drummer didn't like each other, and everybody was having a good time, mainly because they were obviously looking at the money, thinking this is a great thing to be doing. So they had to have band therapy to sort out some of their issues, and then they, you know, completed the tour, and obviously went thanks. That's that we've all made a lot of money. We can retire now, kind of thing. So um, band therapy it can help if there's money. I, I, I would have thought so because I, I would imagine there's lots of little little niggles about things over time and stuff that, that just you know, get bigger and bigger and, uh, as time passes and really aren't that big in the first place. No, I think it's learning not to say anything sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I think there's, there's uh, one of the benefits actually about being, being older and being in a band is that you do sit there and go, right, come on, guys, we're going to do this. And uh, I mean, when we put the band back together again in 2006, one of the things we said, look, we're going to do it, but the one thing we're not going to have is any egos. 
we'll all sit down, discuss what we're doing, and when we've discussed what we're doing, we will do it because we, the majority of us agree it, and everyone's got to actually get behind that rather than actually, you know, doing stuff and then people not wanting to do it and all that sort of thing. No, 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 we agreed as a band we're going to do this and actually not really worry about all those silly bits that people used to get very defensive about and things like that. You know, if you're in a recording studio and you're, and you're not getting it right and someone points out, well, that's wrong here, do, can we do that again? There was a, a time when we were, we were young and uh, full of bravado when... You would go, no, that's absolutely fine, I'm happy with that. And then suddenly there would have been a big kerfuffle about it. Nowadays, we just go, yep, yeah, OK, let's do it again. <laughs> For the so, 19th time. But, but it, it is one of those things, unfortunately, I mean, as Oscar Wilde said, youth is wasted on the young. But it is, it is one of those things that you, you sit there and think, actually, no, uh, let's just get it right and let's do it sensibly rather than having lots of silly arguments about words that are, are in a song or something like that and uh, uh, the way that that's phrased or something like that. Let's just all agree on it and go ahead and do it. Yes, this is true. So what was the reason in 2006 for bringing the band back together? Um, red wine. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, Michael Herbert and I, uh, Mike's the, uh, the obviously the, the original guitarist, the guy who came up with the, the fabulous guitar riff for his big there, um, and uh, he and I went out for, for a, a, a few drinks in Kettner's in Soho, uh, had a pizza, and uh, at the end of the evening we were sort of talking about how there were lots of other bands reforming and stuff, uh, and, and genuinely we felt that there was sort of unfinished business as far as Department S was concerned, primarily because we'd, we'd sort of jumped up to the edge of the, press, uh, 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 the stage and then fallen off it again, um, and we really hadn't fulfilled what we were supposed to do in the first place. And most people knew us for Izik there and the fact that we were on the front cover of Smash Hits and being on top of the pops rather than actually for the fact that we were, you know, what we thought was a good rock and roll band. Of course, you'd have to think that if you're, if you're in the band. Uh, and we just wanted to get out there and actually show, you know, what we were and what we did. And that it wasn't, you know, we weren't someone from Smash Hits. And I must admit, that is the, the, the reaction we constantly get whenever we play somewhere, um, you know, particularly when you play those sort of big festivals like Rebellion or um, Great British Alternative Music Festival where there's some, you know, a couple of thousand people turn up to see you and people go, wow, that's not what I was expecting because I think everyone was sort of expecting it to be very lightweight and a bit poppy and things like that. And actually, when we were playing with, the, when we did Vic with, uh, with the guys from What the Hoople, we were playing with our heroes. You know, that was the sort of band that we always wanted to be, sort of like the Faces, like Mott the Hoople, that type of a rock and roll band. Yes, well, uh, yeah, good, 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 good sort of role models, really. And did it also, did it affect you that Vaughan had died as well? Uh, well, it did me, because I took over doing the vocals. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, uh, you mean as a band? Well, just thought, well, as a band, but also personally, because often, you know, when you're young... We're very indestructible, you know. We we sort of often feel as well. I wasn't, but I was kind of quite quite asthmatic and weedy. But but sometimes people are quite fearless because their health, you know, they can do anything to their bodies and it's fine. If you're an asthmatic, asthmatic, you can't, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, so no, so, no, so no, often, no, you know, it's a bit of a shock when you go, "My God, I knew that person and they died." No, no, I, I, absolutely. And it, well, I, mean, I actually read it in the in the national newspapers and and saw it and went, "My God, look, Vaughan's died." Um, and then spoke to uh, Mike Herbage, and Mike Herbage had been to the funeral and all that sort of thing. 
Um, so, you know, he was still in semi-contact with Vaughan at the time, Vaughan's family. I, I sort of disappeared and gone off to work in advertising uh, in the sort of mid-'80s. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, it did have a, a, a quite, an, quite an effect because you all just thought, wow, where did that come from? Uh, none of us had any idea that uh, he was a gay man and, and, that, uh, and, and, and that he had AIDS. So, you know, it, it was one of those things that people didn't really talk about back, it, back in the day, and, and he didn't flaunt it as far as, as far as the band were concerned, which was a, a shame that it was the time that it was that people didn't feel comfortable with that sort of sexuality that they do today. Yes. Um, uh, in, obviously, afterwards, it's been... Um, uh, has it been... I don't think it's been a, been a hindrance or... Uh, at all, I think that people come along to see Department S, and I think that we do a job, hopefully, that people have been enjoying. So, you know, that they that they walk up, watch it, and, and walk away thinking, "Wow, that wasn't what I, what I was expected." Yeah, it must be quite hopefully in a positive way. That's a, it's always good to be <laughs> a glass half full. But it, but then when you you do reform, you know, you bring in some really heavyweights from Terry Edwards to the amazing Marco Peroni as well. You work with people like that, which must Yeah, feel... yeah, I mean, we're very lucky with um, sort of various sort of people around the place who, who suddenly popped in to do some guitar work on, on some stuff. Uh, we had Glenn Matlock playing bass on one of the tracks, uh, Bedders from Madness playing bass on another track. So, yes, we have done... Um, it was literally just one of those things about sort of networks within networks and things and, and, and people agreed to come down and, 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 and put some stuff on. The core of the band has always been, and when we originally reformed the, and took the stage for the first time, we had actually, actually sort of four original members on, on the stage, which was, which was great. Since then, at various points in time, due to life commitments and things, people are, various people have, have left. And so, you know, we haven't got that, 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 that uh, collection anymore. But, uh, I mean, that's the story of, of, of most bands around these days. Yes. And, and, and obviously, you then work with the amazing Pete Jones, who was in Public Image Limited and then the Cowboys International and is it Brian Brian on bass. So, Brian Brain. Brian Brain. Oh, yes. Good point. Yes. <laughs> God. Yes, I know. Yes, no, no, absolutely. And, and, and Pete is, is a fabulous musician. I mean, the great, great thing about Pete is that I'm not he's a nice bloke, but he's also actually very, very good at what he does, which you sort of expect if you're going to get hired to go and play with public image that, uh, that, that you would have to be pretty good. But you know, he, he was one of those people that turned up on day one and really just got straight stuck into it. He came in to start with because uh, Mark Taylor, who'd been in the, uh, been in the band, was uh, away on holiday and uh, had to go to Cuba on holiday and we, we were offered something on the short term and so we got him in and then sort of Mark sort of said, well, actually I've got a few other things to do at the moment and so Pete just sort of took over and it just sort of happened. Um, but immediately when he stepped in to do, uh, to do the first gig, you sort of thought, wow, you know, Pete's really on this. You know, he, he didn't need showing each song or anything like that. He knew all the songs when he turned up because he bothered to, to, to actually get asked for a set list and then went through track by track of the album and things like that. So, you know, it was a real privilege to play with someone like that. Yeah, absolutely. And when you did your, I think it was your last album, um, When All Is Said and, and All Is Done, I mean, did that come together relatively quickly? Uh, yes, it 
did. I mean, Pete was uh, producing it, which which was great. Pete's got a, a, a studio in his house, so he was able to to do a lot of the stuff there. We recorded some things outside of, uh, of there, but um, essentially most of the stuff was recorded in his home studio. Uh, and, and it did come together reasonably quickly. Um, there, were, there were tracks that we'd been playing for a while that simply sort of naturally came onto there. There were a couple of tracks written for the album, um, and then there, there were a couple of tracks that we were just about to start playing and uh, we were sort of in the can because we were constantly trying to refresh the set and actually introduce new things in because obviously that the amount of people that come and sit, come see bands on a regular basis is quite finite and you do find that we're playing to the same people again so it's, it's actually nice to, to actually have a, a, a couple of new songs and take a couple of old songs out and just mix and match a little bit and then, then you do get people come out and just go oh you didn't play such and such tonight I really like that song and you think well that's quite nice that, uh, that people actually liked a song that we were playing last year and might reintroduce it next year and drop something else out and put something new in and things like that Yes, I think you have to record new material. Because actually the one thing I did, you know, sort of notice listening to the album was that the, the songs have got longer, haven't they? Yes, they, <laughs> they have. And sometimes, which, which is an irritant to me and no one else, only because um, I'm the person who does all the sets and things like that. And I keep on having to chop things down because we did get to one point where we were, where we were doing a gig and they said, uh, right, OK, uh, it was a quite a big, big, uh, support uh, that we were doing and, and, and such. They, they said, all right, uh, would you do, do the support for this? Uh, but it, you, it, we only want you to do half an hour. And okay, fine. And I thought, right, okay, let's put the best of our songs in, in here. And I suddenly realised that actually we had six songs that we were doing. And I thought, oh no, what we need to start doing is chopping some of these songs down because they, it, whilst I don't mind doing six songs, it's actually nice to actually showcase, particularly when you're supporting someone decent, it's nice to showcase to their fans that you've got you know, a decent amount of songs so they don't sort of leave thinking, well, that's a bit strange. It was a bit like watching a, a, a prog rock band. They only did three songs. Yes, well, Topographic Ocean. And it was four songs and four, four sides and four songs, wasn't there? So it's like 20... Um, I'll take your, you know, your, your word for that. My, <laughs> my knowledge of prog rock is, is very poor. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, you, you just let a huge can of worms for yourself there. I know. I know. I had an older brother who loved prog rock. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those funny things. I always felt that the people who were the year above me at school were all into all that sort of thing. That, yeah. So I, I, I was exposed to it with people playing it and things like that, and bands that were in that sort of year and year above me all playing it, but it, it, it never appealed to me at all. But uh, if, if I never heard Rick Wakeman's Journey to the Centre of the Earth again, I would die a happy man. Yes, I know. I mean, you know, I think I think you're right. I think there is these kind of little windows that we have where, where we sort of absorb something. And, it, you know, in our case, or my case, I suppose, you know, it's music. But that that's that that period is, is kind of very formative and it sort of stays with you, doesn't it, for a long time? Oh, I, I, absolutely. And on the music side, it just seems to be... It, 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 you, can, you can almost draw a line in various generations as to where where they fall within these these sort of in, in the musical map. Yes, I know. I mean, however much one tries to listen to Stormzy and Grime, you realise that you, you you're never going to be fifteen listening to it or eighteen and listening to it for you know weeks or months on end. And it's that's the difference, isn't it? Whereas. As you get older, you might have a little kind of, oh, I might have a listen to this and think, that's great, but I'm not going to spend all day and the, and the next year listening to this particular album and, and sort of type of music. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, interesting enough, we played Benny Kasim in Spain a couple of years ago, and uh, the Cortinas were playing. And basically, the average age in, in, in Benny Kasim is about sort of 24. And the Cortinas came on, and just everyone knew all the words to the songs. And I just thought, wow, how do all these people know all the words to the songs? But of course, when, you, when, you're, when you're in your late teens and you first start listening to these bands, of course, you, you just soak all this stuff up completely. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've just got, got, got this sponge and, uh, and this brain that's got sort of the capacity to hold oodles of information that's only being used for a small amount at this moment in time. And you just go, whoop, yep, I, I know all the words to that, which I'm sure there's albums that we can put on now that you sort of sit there and go, well, I haven't listened to this for, for 25 years. And you whack it on and you, think, I can, and you can sing all the words along with it. Yes, it's, it's there. I mean, you know, for me... I was quite young then, but I remember the Carpenters, you know, we had a Carpenters records I played endlessly, and I haven't probably listened to it properly for a long time, but those those lyrics would be like, yep, I can remember all these now, straight away. So um, Yes, uh, absolutely. It was strange enough. I, for, for, for some strange reason, I don't know why I did it, but uh, there was Elton John, on, he's on the BBC at the moment, and his Hyde Park concert, and I was waiting for, I had 15 minutes, and I was, uh, I was waiting, so I thought, oh, I'm just going to watch that and see what Elton John's like. And funeral for uh, not funeral for a friend uh, came on. It was uh, Benny and the Jets came on, and my friend Pete Budd used to play this again and again and again and again. And it came on. I just thought I've got to know all the words to this. Yeah. But uh, this is really weird. But as you say, just at that age, you just suck up all this information. We have. So then what happens, I mean, obviously, you know, last year you were still, you know, you'd had to replace a few members of the band, you're still touring, recording and, and all that. And obviously that's feeling optimistic. And then new year, new decade. So what's the kind of state of play with everyone now? Uh, we are in the middle of recording the new LP, which hasn't got a name, uh, which is just called Four at the moment, uh, because it's the fourth one. Um, so that is happening. We've got uh, four tracks finished we've got three tracks uh, three quarters finished and we've got another four tracks that we're waiting to put down uh, there was obviously a push to get that ready for the for January but it's slightly less so at this moment in time uh, maybe uh, for spring next year but I can't really see that there's going to be any meaningful gigging going on until probably 2022 really can you sadly no <laughs> no I, I think i think that the, the, one of the problems with rock and roll bands is that half of the thing is the atmosphere and uh, and actually the, the close proximity of the audience and all those sort of things and if you take that away it becomes a, a little bit of a dull thing and i know that department s are international superstars but the reality is there are a lot of bands that are significantly bigger than us that would struggle in that sort of environment. And I can't really see that, that people are going to sit there and, and go, oh, great, we'll go and see the Barnes and we'll all sit in a ta on a table and we'll all be sort of 20, 20 feet apart from each other. It's just going to lack atmosphere and everything. If you, if you were seeing the Stranglers doing that, I can imagine that you might think, well, this is a bit of a one-off thing that I can tell people in years to come. Um, Department S, I don't think people are going to be rushing off of their sofas to actually do that, uh, being very honest. Um, so consequently, I, th I think that really there's not going to be much happening until 
we're all able to go back and do things properly again. Yeah, God, you know, it's a, it's I know, a... but the good thing is, what it does mean is that everyone is actually looking to uh, get their uh, entertainment by sitting at home from great radio shows. Yes, this is also true. This is very true. So what is it that, because that, you mentioned you sort of got yourself a, a probably a, a, a well-paid job-ish, whatever, in the 80s. So what is it about the band and, and keeping, holding the baton and, and driving it forward with, you know, over these years, decades? With, you know? I, I think literally, literally that we all felt it was, there was just unfinished business, that, that we were a better band than, pe- than a lot of people realised. I mean, a lot of people had been out to see us during that time because we were doing very well at that, uh, at, at that point. Um, and we sold out the venue in in Victoria, which which was about I would imagine one and a half two thousand people uh, venue at the time, and so so there were people, but there was also a hell of a lot of people who just didn't know who we are, and so consequently, actually going out and doing that, it's been great fun. People have in, people have enjoyed seeing us. We've enjoyed playing uh, playing to them. So you know all of those both of those things things together. Um, and we'll carry on doing it for, for for as long as we can, I think. God, that's fantastic. I mean, just lastly, I mean, what what would you have said to an eighteen year old self starts now with the kind of knowledge that you've got and the experience that you've had over the decades? Don't be so bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, that as I said to, said to that classic quote from uh, uh, Oscar Wilde about youth being wasted on the young. I mean, it, it is one of those things that you that. Sit, watch, learn, uh, and, uh, and act, rather than actually act with your with your head rather than your heart. And I think far too many it, it's something that young people do, isn't it? That uh, they go charging off all over the place and are very impulsive and stuff. And and really, what we should have done, done was actually sat there, looked at it, been very careful about it, and, and thought about it. The, the only other thing, piece of advice I would give going back would have been once once we finished the album go round to all the record companies and ask if anyone would like to put this out because someone would have and it was it was a just the real shame of the of department at that point in time is that you know we'd had two one very uh, very sort of good single a hit single another one which was within the top 50 and we didn't follow it up with an album yes. and so there was never that bit that came after it and you would have sold, even if the album had sold badly at that point in time, it would have sold 20,000 copies. Yeah. You know, yeah. and people would have gone, oh, that wasn't really worth it, was it? You think, well, actually, that would have been 20,000 people who had it, you know, in their homes. This is true, I know. I mean, the indie charts in those days, I mean, there was nothing compared to the mainstream, but then you look at the sales figures now and you think, God, they, they're never really impressive, you know, like when uh, the, uh, the Smiths uh, appeared, you know, it was like... Oh, right, you know, and bands like that. So, um, interesting. So, yeah, I, 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 I would say that that was a, that, that, that was it. that whole thing about not really fulfilling the potential that was there in the first place and going on to make sure that, you know, we did reintroduce the name and that people were, were aware of it again was something that, that meant a lot to us and, and, and still does to, the, to this day. I mean, it, it's, I always say it's, it's Mike Herbage's band, although Mike uh, has since, since left the band, um, you know, and, and it's a legacy that, that we're we're carrying on. Yes. And just lastly, then, what's your favourite cover number? Because you've always done covers, haven't you? We have. Um, let me. I, I, I liked uh, Lucifer Sam that we did uh, a, a while ago, and we did that because we were asked to do a charity night for a uh, Sid Barrett charity. 
and we were literally uh, phoned up and said, "Oh, would you come and do this? It's it's um, in the in the East End of London. We're having a night. Uh, we'd like you to be uh, uh, to, to be on the bill." So we went, "Yeah, okay." And then we thought, "Well, actually, if we're going to do something, we, we we need to either play one of his solo album songs or something from uh, that, that uh, he'd written during the Pink Floyd time." Uh, and I particularly liked Lucifer Sam, and so I went, Lucifer Sam, that's the best song. And everyone else went, it's also the easiest song to uh, to learn to play. Yes, let's do that. And so we did that, and uh, obviously it went down very well. People people liked it, uh, and it, it, that's always been one of my favourites. But we've also covered uh, we've covered um, things like Born to Lose, which is a an interesting one because uh, one of the reasons that we did Born to Lose was Born to Lose, Born to Lose. Yeah. A little play on words. I mean, that was obviously where his uh, name came from in the first place. Uh, so we always thought that was a nice little sort of tribute to Vaughan when we were doing it. Uh, what else? Cuckoo uh, was something that was the first thing that we did when we came back and we released that as a single. That was the one that Bedders from Madness played on, uh, along with Terry Edwards. Uh, so that's always been a, a little favourite of mine, although most people regard that very much as a Marmite song. Some people absolutely love it and other people absolutely hate it. Yes, I think it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's probably it's probably a good song. I suppose we, some of us have got the image ensconced on our minds, haven't we? Of young Alvin, yes. The glove. <laughs> the, the that weird hand thing, you know. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But that was that, that weird hand thing. That was the the interesting thing on that was that the the weird hand thing Vaughan also used to do, and so consequently that was one of the the, the links to Kukachu that so it was one of the reasons why we chose it in the first place. Yes, God, I wonder how old he was when he was doing that on top of the pops. Uh, he would have been about twenty one. Oh. Wow. Oh, so no, you're talking about Alvin or Vaughan? Alvin. Alvin, sorry. Oh, no, Alvin would be considerably older because he'd been in Shane Fenton and the Fentons uh, during the 60s. He was one of those uh, guys that, were, that had been around for, for, for ages yes. and ages. Yeah. Um, I would imagine he would have been in his early 30s, at least. Yeah, oh, precious. I know, he's probably, probably in a bit of an old dude or anything, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I think there were there were a few of those guys actually around around that sort of time. I mean, Mott Hoople had been ploughing a, a, a furrow until until David Bowie got involved when when he heard they were going to split up and then yeah. uh, gave them gave them all the young dudes. Although he tried to give them Suffragette City and they said no, <laughs> which I think is uh, interesting. Yes, it's true. I know. I know. I mean, actually, you know, just lastly, I think Debbie Harry was thirty when she was on Top of the Pops doing Denis Denis. So yeah. So um. That was fine. That was all good. I think the interesting thing actually about the the the, 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 sev- the sort of seventy seven lot was that the people who actually really made it. There were loads of people who were sort of seventeen, eighteen uh, at the time, but the people who actually made it were all the guys who were actually a bit older and who'd done their due diligence in terms of going out and doing the gigs and things like that. I mean, Strummer was older. Uh, than everyone else. The Stranglers were older than everyone else. The people who were the exception to that were the Jam, who were uh, sort of, you know, in their, in their late teens, early 20s. Yes. But, 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 but everyone else, you know, when we tour with people now, that all of these sort of traditional punk bands, they're all in their uh, mid to late 60s, uh, a lot of them. So, you know, that they were 24, 25 at the time, which, which sort of makes sense, because you've actually got uh, the... 
understanding of actually songs and structures and, uh, and actually life experiences that you can put things into your songs at that point in time and probably being touring as a musician for four or five years so you've learned all about stagecraft and all those sort of things. Yes, this is true. But look, Ed, I'm, I must go in a bit, but thank you ever so much. No, absolute pleasure. And, uh, um, and I, I, I will look forward to um, speaking to you soon. Yes, definitely. And I'll, um, yes, when I put this out, I'll send you a copy and then you can put it on your social media site. I certainly will do. Thank you very much. Take Cheers, care. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. I love those endings. <laughs> they're always so, um, yes, they're not smooth at all, are they? That's kind of the appeal. Anyway, that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with Eddie Roxy, Edward Lloyd Barnes, um, lead singer, keyboard player with Department S. If you want to contact me, I know, I know, so I'm desperate. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86show. It's got a groovy logo. It's, you'll find it. Anyway, look, have a great week. And there'll be more, many more than these interviews. Anyway, stay safe.